I don't know why I'm whispering, but I'm under the blanket. This is how we record stuff when we can't go to a studio, throw blankets over ourselves to make the audio sound less tinny. I was going to say there ought to be a podcast called Under the Blanket, but of course there was. It's now defunct. It's hot in here. Just saying. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. I'm Patrick Cox. I really hope you're healthy and safe. If you're sick, I hope you're being well cared for. We have two overlapping stories today about the fantastic job we're doing right now of misunderstanding the coronavirus. First, an Asian-American medical student's fear of a particular accent. And then, metaphor, and the trouble it gets us into when it comes to describing a pandemic. Esther Kim grew up surrounded by accents. I was um, born and, and raised in Los Angeles. Her parents both originally came from South Korea. My dad came here for his medical residency. My mom came here um, when she was nine. Esther's telling me this from her, need I even say, from her self-isolation at home. She lives in North Carolina. She's in med school there, on her way to becoming a psychiatrist. So the accents. There were her family's Korean accents. There were accents at school, all kinds of them. And different accents among the international musical students she met when she was studying classical violin. Esther was less exposed to regional American accents. Before she moved to North Carolina, she says she never even met anyone with a southern accent. TV and movies was the closest she got to that. Do you remember the Pixar movie Cars? Oh, yeah. So there's one character. My name's Maiden. They have a very, very heavy southern accent. And I thought, wow, like, it's just very interesting how this movie is portraying them as kind of like the down south hick person and i don't know that that's that's like the very strong strong one for me you're in radiator springs the cutest little town in carburetor County. but soon enough she was living in the real american south before i moved i remember people telling me oh the you know people in the south are so kind have you ever heard of uh, southern hospitality that's what they're all about and so I, I thought, all right, this, this will be nice. Which it was, until one afternoon in Esther's third year there. I was studying at the public library, and I was with a few friends. I was the only Korean-American there. And while I was studying, there was a, a gentleman who came and really slammed down this huge dictionary, and it kind of took me by surprise. And then he looked at me and said, here, you'll need this. And I looked at it, and it was an English dictionary. And I was so kind of almost in denial. I, I thought maybe this was like, like a mistake, or I, I didn't want to assume that he was actually, you know, if this was an act of racism. But then I realized when I looked at my other friends, they looked at me like, wow, this is not okay. And so I was really fortunate because I had two friends who actually stood out for me and one friend that actually chased him down and approached him and talked with him about it. What happened? What, what was the nature of the conversation? Well, when I asked my friend, I just said, well, he just 
he didn't even have words. He just, I don't know if he said, I'm sorry, but he didn't even have any words. He didn't argue back. He just kind of cowardly, you know, scurried away. <laughs> was just almost embarrassed. Esther says she still doesn't really get what he was trying to say. It was, it was just so random. But one thing that stuck was his heavy accent. It was something she couldn't shake off. And then recently, things for her and her friends started getting worse. It began in January, before Donald Trump famously renamed COVID-19 the Chinese virus. Esther isn't Chinese, but she and her friends all sensed that they were being seen as Chinese. People steered clear of them on the street. One woman even made a show of covering her mouth with a handkerchief as Esther walked past her. And that was before most people were wearing face masks. Her friends, other Asian med students, have had it worse. There was one of my friends who who had told me that her friend was stalked by a man in a car recording videos of her while she was walking her dog. And the entire time he was just recording her on, on his phone and was yelling racial slurs at her and saying that she was dangerous and that she needs to stay away from him, even though he was the one that was following her, which is, I don't know how that, how that works. Uh, that same friend that told me that story, she experienced something herself when she went to CVS a couple weeks ago. And she was walking into an aisle and there was an older Caucasian woman and they were kind of both looking at the same thing. And all of a sudden she acknowledges that, she, that she's there and jumps and yells, there's one now. You know, I think that those are a couple experiences. I didn't go through those, but just hearing about it just breaks my heart because... You know, it's it's really a shame that these are people who are in medicine who are really dedicating their lives to help others and to think that they're being treated like this is, is really awful. So now when Esther hears someone speaking with a Southern accent, it sends a warning flare in her mind. I definitely have a little bit more anxiety about it if I'm at a grocery store and I hear it. Especially when I hear of all these stories that have been happening to my friends, I actually, I, I think I'm a little bit more cautious, really. Ever since that incident in the library where the gentleman did have a very, very heavy Southern accent, it's almost like I've got this like Pavlovian response that if I hear it behind my back or I hear it in public, I kind of feel like I have to be a little more hyper alert, worrying that, okay, this person could maybe act in the same way, or they, they could be racist, they, they could act bigoted, they probably don't, don't have the same political views as I do. And, and that's so, I know that's something that I have to correct, because we shouldn't make assumptions based on people's accents ever. Um, but it is interesting how, you know, our human brains kind of become wired that way when you have negative experiences, more so than the positive experiences. <laughs> I guess you remember the negative things even more. Esther Kim. She'll be graduating from medical school next month. After that, she plans to move back to Los Angeles, where she'll start her residency in psychiatry. It was a friend who put me in touch with Esther. He's Chinese-American, a frontline doctor at a hospital also in North Carolina. He teaches med students. He told me of an encounter he had recently with a hospital patient, a white woman, who told him, you people brought that virus over. He uses that comment and his response to it. He told her that what she said was inappropriate and in any case, he doesn't discriminate on any grounds. He uses that as a teaching moment for his students, many of whom are non-white. 
To give you an idea of how widespread this kind of thing has become, there's an organization in California called the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. It's working with an Asian studies professor at San Francisco State University to document incidents of what it calls coronavirus discrimination. Everything from being barred from getting onto a subway train to being spat upon to being physically assaulted. In the two weeks up to April 1st, the council's report lists nearly 100 incidents a day. Just the reported incidents, mind you, probably a fraction of the actual number. After the break, why in this moment we're embracing the language of war. Here at Subtitle, our plan for right now had been to take a break between seasons, to travel to a few places, meet people, interview them, and have a season two ready in the early summer. Of course, we couldn't do that. So instead, we're here putting out a few unplanned episodes. And dear listener, you can do your bit by helping us get out the word about the podcast. Tell your friends, tell your family about Subtitle. Share an episode on social media. Best of all, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate and review us. Thank you. And at a time like this, I can't tell you how good it is to be a part of the Hub and Spoke Podcast Collective. This is a group of super smart podcasters who know how to tell stories about ideas. The latest addition to our group is a podcast called The Briny. That's B-R-I-N-Y, as in saltwater. It's a podcast about the sea and all the ways we humans are changing it. The most recent episode includes a wonderfully calming conversation about aquarium webcams. That's The Briny with host Matt Frassica. Check it out along with all the other Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. There are very few of us who've experienced anything quite like the crisis we're going through now. We don't know how to describe it, or what to call it, or what to compare it to. Our leaders, though, they seem pretty certain. America continues to wage all-out war to defeat the virus, this horrible, horrible virus. You see how... We must act like any wartime government and do whatever it takes to support our economy. Nous sommes en guerre. En guerre sanitaire. Finally, my high school French is kicking in. We're at war, says French President Emmanuel Macron. Why all the war talk? Are these words the best ones to use right now? People will say, oh, you're, you're being too analytical or we're in the middle of a crisis. You know, word choice doesn't matter right now. But it really does. Seema Yasmin thinks that many politicians are misleading us. She's a medical doctor. She teaches medicine and journalism at Stanford. And one of her interests is the misrepresentation of science. The science isn't at war with this disease. That We can't bomb it away in the same way that governments bomb enemies. Science, in terms of its fight against infectious disease, it's a slow slog. It can be hard. And in the meantime, you've got politicians and other officials using this very violent language at a time right now when there's already so much stress. We're seeing reports that domestic violence is on the rise. People are cooped up at home, stressed out. Um, so I don't think it's helpful to use that language. And I don't think it's reflective of the science. But if you look at it from a politician's point of view, a leader's point of view, it is easier to see why you might want to dress all this up in war metaphors. 
After all, you want the people to mobilize, to change their conduct, to make sacrifices. And they're only going to do it if you can convey the danger, what's at stake, in the starkest possible way. What crimes has Hitler and all that Hitler stands for brought upon Europe and the world? The outrage of the unopposed air bombing applied with calculated and scientific cruelty to helpless populations. Once you've established the existential nature of the threat, then you can ask people to change their behavior and maybe suffer so they can survive. Lift up your hearts. All will come right out of the depths of sorrow and of sacrifice. Will be born again the glory of mankind. With a formula as powerful as that, why wouldn't a political leader declare that we're at war? And why wouldn't we buy it? I have to say that I to sometimes slip up and fall into that language. But I think it's really important to correct ourselves and think about the impact that can be had when you're using really violent language at a time when people are already anxious and already scared. Like, how does that really help us? Okay, okay. At this point, I push back at Seema a little. I mean, in a crisis like this, we the people, we're crying out for leaders who are fearless and honest and inspirational, leaders who can use a strong, soaring metaphor, maybe a flawed one too, but use it in, let's say, a more nuanced, responsible way. If there's been a, any hero in this crisis, uh, for a lot of people, it is Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. He's shown leadership and toughness and empathy, and people really seem to like him. He has taken this war metaphor in uh, further than anybody else. When he was on the New York Times Daily podcast in mid-March, he said, we see the enemy on the horizon. They're approaching they very quickly. approaching very quickly. And we don't have our defenses in place. When they talk about flattening the curve, flattening the curve, they're trying to slow the advance of the enemy until we can get enough of our defenses in place. What are the defenses? A healthcare system that can handle the injured, mm -hmm. to torture the metaphor. And we're not there. Is there a sense that by using this kind of stark language that he's able to convey something that, that has more meaning to the general public and is not just, it's not just simply describing it just as a straight-out war, but he's actually trying to make some points about public health concerns like flattening the curve. So again, I don't see how that language, which is violent, militaristic, paints this microscopic pathogen as the enemy we need to fight. But I think about the epidemic of mental health illness that we're seeing as well. So we're seeing people really anxious, people grieving the ones they have lost. For some, there might be some power in using that kind of militaristic language against the pandemic, against the virus. But for others, that can just be really alarming. And it takes me back to the literature on cancer and the language we use with cancer patients. Some cancer patients like to be called cancer warriors or like to think about this being a battle. And others say, heck no, no. 
I don't want to think about this in violent terms. It's something that's inside my body. If you're calling it a fight or you're calling it a battle, then that suddenly has turned my body into a conflict zone. And so that could be perhaps how some New Yorkers are feeling personally if they are infected, but also maybe not wanting to think about their city or their state being a battleground in those quite scary terms. And when you look at the history of this, well, this fighting disease metaphor, it's baked into our consciousness. It goes back at least until the mid-1600s, when there was a very famous British doctor called Thomas Sydenham. And this might be one of the earliest instances of that kind of violent language in medicine. But he said, I attack the enemy within. A murderous array of disease has to be fought against. And the battle is not a battle for the sluggard. And then we've skipped to the 19th century when Louis Pasteur, the French biologist who talked about the germ theory of disease, he talked about infectious disease being invading armies that lay siege to our bodies. So really imperialistic language, actually, that ties in with what was happening politically then. They talked about disease had to be conquered very much in the same way that continents and dark continents had to, had to be conquered too. You skip forward a little bit more to the 1920s and suddenly we're talking about cancer cells being anarchists and cancer cells being Bolsheviks. And then skip forward to 1971 when Nixon signs the National Cancer Act and he talks about the war on cancer. So it's not new. It goes back to at least the 1600s as far as I could find. One other effect of this war metaphor is that it makes it easier for political leaders to turn entire groups of people into potential enemies. For a while, as we heard, Donald Trump called coronavirus the Chinese virus. He implied that he gave it that name in retaliation for a Chinese theory that American forces had somehow spread the virus to China. He doesn't call it that anymore, but Seema says the damage is done. We've seen a president who've really framed this as a foreign problem that's come from outside and almost was an attack from China on the US. And that language, again, talking about the impact of words, that language has translated very directly into attacks on Chinese American people, people of Asian descent. I think that's very deliberate in terms of framing this as a foreign invader and something that needs to be fought on those grounds, as opposed to a compassionate approach with empathy towards those who are infected and those who are fighting, those who are trying to treat those people who are ill. Seema Yasmin. She's a public health physician and a medical journalist. She directs the Stanford Health Communication Initiative. And she also mentioned to me that in the UK, there's an online collection of alternative metaphors for describing cancer. That sounds really fascinating. And I'll see if we can talk to someone from there in a future episode. We're planning to do more episodes with stories like these of words and phrases, metaphors that are coming up in this moment. We'd really like to hear from you. If you have a story to tell us about a phrase in another language or any issue involving language, let us know. Our email is subtitlepod, all one word, at gmail.com. That's subtitlepod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us. We're at lingopod. Our sound designer is Tina Toby. Today's episode was edited by Kavita Pillay. Thanks to our co-producers of the Linguistic Society of America. Also to The World on your local public radio station every weekday, one hour of international news, essential listening. And 
to Lyceum. This is a brand new podcast app that we think you'll like. Right now, it's featuring a bunch of language-themed podcasts, and there's plenty more, including the Lyceum original podcast, Writ Large. We'll be back soon, and remember, please, be sure to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.